Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is John Peterson. He is a leading expert on Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games, and is the author of Playing at the World, Dungeons and Dragons Art and Arcana, Heroes Feast, and The Elusive Shift. His new book is Game Wizards, The Epic Battle for Dungeons and Dragons, which is published by our friends at MIT Press. John, thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Jason. It's, it's a pleasure to join you here. Uh, it sounds like your bookstore is pretty awesome. From I, I can't say I've been. I was reading up on it on the web, but uh, you're doing good stuff. Independent bookstores, I'm always happy to support and come out for them. So, Thank you, John. Thanks for joining me. And I hope that uh, someday after we've gotten through uh, this pandemic, you'll be able to visit us here. Um, well, first, John, speaking of the pandemic, let me ask you, how have you been doing over these past couple of years and what has this time during COVID-19 been like for the average player of Dungeons and Dragons? So uh, obviously this has been really weird. I mean, I I'm one of those people that, that used to travel a lot, was on planes a lot, was going to conventions and things like that. Um, and uh, obviously that came to a, a grinding halt. And you really do. I mean, you feel very disconnected. Uh, fortunately, we do have these online tools that that let people um, both just socialize, but also play. And that's where a lot of play is obviously moved to. And, you know, this, this you know, has been a long time in the mail, right? Uh, there's been a real trend over the past couple of years before the pandemic uh, towards people um, conducting their games online just because <clears throat> people live in so many different places. There's so much remote work and things like that these days. And moreover, you know, the, the immense popularity of some of these streaming shows in particular, you know, Critical Role, uh, things, things like that, um, have kind of shown people the possibilities of doing games online and kind of uh, po posting them up and having that be an experience that people can both watch as well as participate in. And so kind of it, I think we were ready. The gaming community was like strangely ready for this to come. Um, so many of the, the tools for it had already kind of been been popularized before this came about, mm -hmm. uh, but there's there's no doubt it's been weird and dark and uh, awful. And I, I'm hiding out in the woods in Maine now. It's, it's mm -hmm. my until until the world gets its stuff together. Like that's where I'll be spending my time. <laughs> yeah, nice. Where in Maine are you? A uh, little town called Biddeford. All right, all right, very nice. Um, I've driven up through lime, to Limestone. I think, which is, you know, almost Canada, basically, but beautiful, beautiful state. Um, and yet the first uh, time that I think I really knew that uh, COVID-19 was a thing that was real and happening a couple of years ago, I think I was in a grocery store and I overheard someone saying, oh no, my dungeon master got COVID. Um, <laughs> so I guess it happens, but let's now dive into your book, uh, Game Wizards. Are you a Dungeons and Dragons expert because you play Dungeons and Dragons? or because you were just fascinated by the game? I mean, I think I transitioned at one point. If you looked back, you know, to the 2000s, I was playing very heavily in campaigns I ran and campaigns my friends ran. And there was, and you know, I was also playing a lot of like online games like World of Warcraft, you know, I was like super into early WoW. And, you know, I, I kind of had a, a transition point where I was spending a lot of time gaming and got more interested in the history and just, started spending more time studying and writing and collecting and researching um, than I really spent playing. And that's, that's still true today. 
Um, so it kind of got started because of the avidity of my playing, but um, has kind of transitioned, I think, more into now. It's something that I study more than I play. Yeah, great. Is there a game that you're playing a lot right now? can't say that I am. Uh, this has been a weird couple of months just in terms of other projects that I'm working on that are due. So I haven't really had much of a time to play anything. <laughs> yeah. um, also moving to Maine is something yeah. I, I was in San Diego previously, you know, I had to pack up everything and like get to Maine and like, you know, I'm still not unpacked. I think I moved in like September or something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's um, just, just a lot going on as with everybody. Yeah, wow, that's a kind of a dramatic move, San Diego to Maine. <laughs> um, it's it's pretty much as almost as far as you go. Probably Seattle to Miami is farther, but right. yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty much as much of a remove as you could you could manage. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, thank you, John. So, um, for our listeners, can you please introduce us to Ernest Gary Gygax and tell us how he came to sell? Uh, Dungeons and Dragons to um, game players through his company, TSR. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one for me. I mean, it's the kind of thing I write entire books about. Um, so Gary Gygax was a Midwesterner. He, he was in a little town called Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where he had spent most of his life. His mother was, was from there. And, you know, Gary was someone who had a job as an insurance underwriter which uh, he, he lost in 1970, I think in part because he was playing too many games. He was really like more focused on what was then um, a wargaming community that he belonged to. And th these war games that Gary Gygax played, you know, when you think of a war game, you may be thinking of a, a board game made by a company like Avalon Hill, a game like Gettysburg, where you recreate the Battle of Gettysburg, or, you know, he was really into those. And then he got increasingly into miniature war games and this style of wargaming was something that was maybe more artisanal. It's not something you kind of bought in the box and unpacked what was in it. And then you kind of, you know, just play it on the table in 15 minutes, right, with your friends. This is much more of a, um, you craft these miniatures, you craft this elaborate, realistic battlefield miniatures will fight on, and you often devise your own rules. And Gary in 1971 had gotten very interested in the medieval period as a period to simulate in war games. And he produced this, this game with a friend of his, Jeff Perrin, that was called Chainmail. And Chainmail had in the back of it what he called the fantasy supplement. The fantasy supplement for Chainmail contained all of these rules for orcs and dragons and uh you know, Ents and Balrogs and had wizards who could cast spells like Fireball and Lightning Bolt and Phantasmal Forces and things like that. And, you know, this kind of started to take off. And this led Gary, ultimately, because the company that had published Chainmail, uh, which was called Gaiden Games, basically went under in 1973, when he had started working with another gamer, a guy named Dave Arneson, on a game that was to be called Dungeons and Dragons, he had to found his own company, basically, to publish it. And so he and uh, another local childhood friend of his managed to cobble together enough cash to put out a thousand copies of this three volume, you know, little kind of primitive pamphlets and a cheap uh, wood grain faux box that was called Dungeons and Dragons. And that's really what started it all at the beginning of 1974. Excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, people here in the South, they're still recreating the Battle of Gettysburg in a different way, huh? unfortunately, hopefully. Folks will move on at some point. Um, but thank you, John. Friends, this is a good time to mention the Crook's Corner Book Prize 
what Pulitzer Prize winner Charles Frazier calls the coolest book prize in the country. Awarded annually for the best debut novel set in the American South, the $5,000 prize is intended to encourage emerging writers, whether published by established publishing houses, small independent publishers, or self-published authors. This year's winner will be chosen by best-selling novelist and poet Ron Rash and will be announced in January 2022. For more information, visit www.crookscornerbookprize.com. John, back to your book. Um, you mentioned Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Is Wisconsin, uh, specifically Lake Geneva, I suppose, a state and environment that lends itself to fanaticism around tabletop gaming? I think it's a small town. It's kind of a, it was originally a resort town, Lake Geneva was. Like people who had a lot of money in Chicago, they would build mansions, right, along the shores of uh, Geneva Lake. It was a place you'd go in the summer, you'd ignore in the winter. Uh, by the time D&D came around, actually, of all things, uh, Playboy had built a, a resort in Lake Geneva. And so that made it kind of more of a winter sports destination. They had golf clubs, you know, golf courses there, but they did like skiing and would have famous singers come and do acts in their lounge and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, it was really a place where there were kind of townies, you know, who were you know, middle-class, lower middle-class, um, often working, you know, in factories, things like that around Wisconsin. And then there were rich people who came and kind of, you know, would be there for a bit in the summer. And so, I mean, you know, it's the kind of place where in the long winter months, you don't have much to do. There's a lot of snow, there's not a lot of people. There's not a lot, a lot of nightlife. So in that sense, I think it does lend itself to people getting together at each other's houses and wanting to do something like, like sit around the table and create an amazing world that they can play in. Absolutely. Thank you, John. It sounds like a lot of fun. Um, the business model of not selling games, but rules to games is interesting. Um, are folks still doing that now? And is that a viable business model in 2021? Or really, I guess, since the age of mass consumption on the internet? Um, and how did this business model come about? Yeah, so it, it is a distinction. It's worth kind of diving into a bit more first. So, I mean, when I talked about like how Avalon Hill would sell you Gettysburg in a box, right? That That's a game. In a sense, there's a board, there's counters, there's dice. And then in the box, there's this, this flimsy little rule book, right? That tells you how to put all these things together. And kind of the, the miniature wargame community I was alluding to earlier, they had a different approach where really they would generate some rules. But, you know, again, just imagine that flimsy stapled rule book being your product, right? That, that was good because everything else you made yourself or you staged yourself. And, you know, anybody who knows people that are into uh, historical figures know people dedicate an endless amount of energy to painting them, making sure that exactly the right color for this uniform and this flag and that, you know, the armaments are correct, everything else, and figuring out how to create a terrain, maybe on a sand table, right, that can accurately contour the battlefield of some particular, you know, of Katra in the Napoleonic War or something like that, right? Um, you know, that community really looked at rules as, um, you know, I, I, something that, that wasn't worth like a lot of money. It's something you might publish in an amateur magazine. They would call them fanzines at the time. Maybe you could convince people to pay like a couple bucks for them if you put a lot of work into them and they had a lot of good historical information. And so that, that was really the business model that TSR took up when they published D&D. They originally marketed it as rules for fantastic medieval war games campaigns. The term role-playing game wasn't around yet, 
right? And so, you know, they looked at this like a, a set of guidelines that would just kind of help you make the kind of game you wanted to play. And I think that's still a very vital business model today. I think when you look at the books Wizards of the Coast sells for fifth edition D&D today, the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Monster Manual, they are indeed in, in that exact spirit, rules for you to go out and make some cool stuff with yourself. Think up your own world. You know, there's a great line at the end of uh, the original 1974 D&D rules that says, why let us do any more of your imagining for you? Like, go figure it out. Now, you know, Wizards does as well sell modules and adventures, right? So there are very popular products out there like Dragon Heist, Ravenloft, the new one, the Wild Beyond Witchlight, you know, that are um, intended to be more out of the box, more like here's an adventure that you can, as a dungeon master, run for your friends, and a lot of people, because so much work is put into these, a lot of people really love um, products like that. So that's also a viable business model. But that business model builds on top of that traditional idea of we're not going to sell you like a game. We're going to sell you a toolkit, like, you know, something that people at the time would call, you know, um, you know more a, a, you know, a design a game kit than a game. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, John. Um, I'll have more questions about uh, some of the things you just spoke about in a moment. But first, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with John Peterson. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with John Peterson, author of Game Wizards, The Epic Battle for Dungeons and Dragons, which is published by our friends at MIT Press. John, you mentioned fanzines earlier. Uh, can you please tell us about fanzines and how Gary Gygax's contribution to them contributed to the rise of Dungeons and Dragons? Before there was an internet, there were fanzines. Or I, I might even, and I mean that in a very expansive way. Like a lot of what we take as the culture of participating in online forums and social media and so on was anticipated by, and indeed, like there's even like a historical causal line you can draw from these science fiction fans who were pioneers of fanzines and, you know, starting back in the, the 30s up, up to the, the 60s, and the kind of discourse that you see um, on internet online forums. It was a place where, you know, outside of the, the prosines, that's what they contrast them with, professional magazines were made in science fiction fandom. Um, a fanzine was more a place that anybody could just kind of put up their ideas, maybe their reviews, maybe, hey, I've got some idea for how a game should work that could work like this. Um, it'll be a little sketch. You won't get any money. Maybe you get a couple bucks for like publishing an article in a fanzine that the fanzine was doing quite well. Um, but for the most part, it was just an open forum of ideas. And there's a particular category of these fanzines that are called um, amateur press associations or APAs. 
And these have become extremely popular in science fiction fandom, and they've played a huge role early on in how science fiction fans came to embrace D&D. And when we say science fiction fandom at the time, that really encompassed both fans of fantasy fiction and things we consider to be science fiction, any kind of like genre or horror, things like that were kind of bundled, um, you know, into this community that was then called science fiction fandom. And those people really brought to D&D and its rules when it came out uh, a striking new perspective. And Gygax himself was like a master of fanzines. Like he was a community builder. He was this sort of guy who organized conventions. He created a convention called Gen Con, um, which is named for the Lake Geneva War Games Convention, where in 1968, he originally got around 100 people to converge on his little town from around North America. Now, of course, Gen Con takes place in Indianapolis and regularly sees 70,000 people coming to attend it to play games of all kinds. But even more than conventions, probably fanzines were the main way that Gary Gygax socialized the ideas that led up to D&D. He founded clubs. These clubs would have fanzines. One famous one was called the Domesday Book, which was the magazine of the Castle and Crusade Society that both Gygax and Arneson participated in. And Dave Arneson, who came up with so many of the fundamental ideas behind D&D, the idea of dungeon adventuring, the idea of gaining experience points and going up in level, but he was collaborating with Gary and publishing about his Blackmore campaign through this fanzine, through the Domesday book. And after D&D came out, you know, it's not that TSR could afford to advertise in like real uh, venues. So instead they went to fanzines and wrote articles about stories you could experience while playing D&D that were like nothing people were writing about in the wargaming fanzines at the time. Yeah, thanks. And you mentioned uh, before the internet, do um, physical fanzines is something you can touch, collect, hold in your hands, et cetera, uh, still have a place today or have blogs and websites kind of taken that world over? There, There is a dedicated cadre of fanzine enthusiasts who won't will never go away who want the physical things to be in print and actually mm-hmm. kickstarter does a thing that's called zine quest mm-hmm. that started i don't know maybe three years ago now maybe four um it's kind of an annual let's get together some people who want to make like print zines and kind of create a platform for them shine a spotlight on it and so there, there's and there are people who do this independently of uh, zine quest as well that's just one example of ways that that's still around but I think it'll always be part of the culture for people that want that old school feel. They want to have like the physical pieces of paper. There there are a bunch of great ones that are still out there. Excellent. Thank you so much, John. Uh, What was it like for Gary Gygax to grow this company, TSR, as someone who had a family to provide for? So it was tough um, in the sense that, you know, when he started TSR with his friend Don Kay, there was really only two people that were doing it originally late in 1973. I don't think he ever thought this was going to like support his family. Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to provide a way that he could publish, you know, some game rules for him and his friends and maybe break even, like at least not lose money on doing it. And, you know, he, he still had to work. He was a cobbler. That was his, his actual job at the time. Um, he fixed shoes out of his basement. He had this enormous shoe cobbling apparatus that, you know, took over the space. He used to have a gaming sand table in his basement and it, it was tough. I mean, he was, they were really living hand to mouth. Um, he had five children and a dog and a bunch of cats and a wife. And, you know, they were living in a not very big house. 
And, you know, so that this, this was a lean time for him, but little did he know, uh, little did, could anyone have suspected that this game that, you know, really there was no reason to think would be any bigger than one of these amateur war games that might sell a couple thousand copies if you're lucky, would go on to just this unprecedented, completely serendipitous success. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Um, earlier, we spoke about rule books and the different guides for Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, the first draft of a rule book for Dungeons and Dragons was 100 pages long. I have a five-year-old son who really wants to play Dungeons and Dragons, mostly because he's seen the box and just thinks that the dragon on the front is really cool. Um, so we got a starter set, and I believe the beginner's rule book is now at least 50% longer than this first draft of 100 pages. Um, did Gary see this gigantic rule book as a positive or as a barrier to entry? And how do you perceive it? So they've gone back and forth over the years. And I think he, even Gary kind of went back and forth about this. Once D&D started to take off, he, he split it into two distinct kind of streams. There was basic D&D and then there was advanced D&D. And it's advanced D&D that had a three volume, there's a huge player's handbook, a huge dungeon master's guide, a, the monster manual, which by then had 350 monsters, you know, that came out in 1977. But there, then there was the basic set, which Gary got a um, California neurology professor named uh, Eric Holmes to edit basically the original rule books down into something that was supposed to be more digestible and to get people, um, get people up to speed, right? On just the basics of the game. You could only go from character levels one through three in the original uh, basic set. And, mm -hmm. you know, over the years, they've gone back and forth about this. Um, there have been very simple rule sets, very basic and elemental ones that have been released as introductory products. But then, of course, they've also made zillions and zillions of detailed books that for any possible, like, aspect of Dungeons and Dragons, you know, goes into absolutely scathing detail about, like, how you'd specify everything about it. Um, I think, you know, and I think it was in the third 3.5 edition. There wasn't just a Monster Manual 1. There was a Monster Manual 1, a Monster Manual 2, 3, 4, and 5. that were all separate books just tabulating monsters. Mm. So I, I think you can distill it down, though, to the essentials. And if you look at the kinds of starter sets they sell today, um, you know, there's one for the Stranger Things television show. There's one for Rick and Morty. You know, there's lots of themed ones like that. Mm. They are designed to be able to get you up to speed quick. And, you know, if you ask me, like, which one do I think maybe is the most effective? I was always partial to the, the Mulvey basic, the 1981, uh, this, this, you know, there was a pink box and, and then an expert blue box. You know, th those boxes, I think, had a, a very good quick ramp up to the game that doesn't require you to have to digest a lot to get there. It, but the basic thing to coming back to fundamentals, the great thing about D&D is you can play it as pure role playing. You can just ask people, you know, if they're coming on board as players, tell me what you want to do and I'll tell you what happens. You don't need to know the rules. Just put yourself into the situation. You're the thief. You're balancing on this ledge. There's a rope to the side of you and like a window to the other side. Like, what do you want to do? Mm -hmm. And, you know, just answer like you're in that situation and you'll get to understand how to play the game pretty quickly. Excellent. Thank you so much, John. Um, fast forwarding in time, but rewinding in the context of your book uh, to the introduction, what happened, John, uh, when Brian Bloom 
decided to exercise his option for shares in TSR. Yeah, so this this is a bit of a long story, and you know when you look at D and D, I guess I want to preface it by saying when you look at D and D as a game, as you know what it's really achieved in terms of its innovations, the impact it's had on all of us as, as people, I have nothing but good things to say about it. I love D and D; it's made a huge difference in my own life. When you look at TSR as a business, <laughs> and you know, look at Gary Gygax, as I said, was a cobbler, ending up president of this company that initially was making nothing, but then it's making twenty million, almost thirty million dollars uh, by the early nineteen eighties. A lot had changed, and Gary had a business partner named Brian Bloom, who actually came on board quite early. They needed his family's money basically to be able to pay the printers tab for the very first edition of D and D. So he and his family were always major shareholders in the company. Um, you know, as the company got bigger and bigger, there were more layers of management, more delegation. Uh, Gary and Brian didn't exactly see eye to eye. And by 1985, um, you know, the, the company had really peaked, right? D&D had gone through its first fad. Um, the sales of the core books were starting to decline. Uh, the company was not making a profit. and was, in fact, starting to take more and more serious losses in 83, 84, and then 85. So in, in 1985, Gary had controlling interest in the company because he he himself had exercised a stock option he'd been granted in 1976 and was kind of determined to um, push the company in the direction he thought was appropriate. And you know, then there was this moment where uh, Brian Bloom exercised his option, which basically put enough shares in play that Gary probably would no longer have controlling interest in TSR. And this is the moment that starts Game Wizards. We, we started off by looking at a day in 1985 where Gary learns that he probably doesn't control TSR and thus Dungeons and Dragons anymore. Mm-hmm. And then wind the stack all the way back and say, what, what did this really mean back then? How do we understand what it must have meant to Gary Gygax to be about to lose TSR and D&D? Well, to know how far he came, you have to look at just how humble the beginnings were. Absolutely. Thank you, John. And finally, a bit outside of the context of this book, what happened to Dungeons and Dragons when Wizards of the Coast took over ownership? And how have you seen their stewardship of Dungeons and Dragons going both with the game and with its affiliated mediums, such as the Dragonlance novels by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman? I mean, so I, I work with wizards, right? I mean, uh, you mentioned I worked in a book called Art and Arcana, another called Heroes Feast. Those are D&D books. And so, I mean, I obviously do not think that uh, Wizards is a, a company that has done a bad job with this. <laughs> I think it, you know, they, something as miraculous in some ways as the fad that brought D&D to its ascendancy in the 70s and 80s has happened since 2014. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was really a time before that where a lot of people thought Games like World of Warcraft had simply taken over and the tabletop role-playing would be irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And there was a remarkable, uh, again, very surprising chain of events that began with the release of the fifth edition in 2014 that has now made the game by every metric I'm aware of more popular than ever, like radically more. We're Mm -hmm. talking, you know, 50 million people worldwide who are now believed to be regular players of Dungeons and Dragons. These are numbers that put to shame the numbers that, you know, TSR could bandy around in like 1982 at the height of the initial fad. So clearly we're in a moment. And that moment, um, I think TSR can claim, or uh, Wizards of the Coast can claim a lot of the credit for like where 
where the game has come in the past, uh, you know, seven or so years now. And yeah, I mean, you know, they brought back a lot of classic properties. One of the things I do love about Wizards, and you'll see this in books like Art and Arcana, mm -hmm. is how re reverential they are of some of the original dungeons, of some of the original ideas. And so properties like Dragonlance, I think it's very important for them to, to bring, bring them back. And as, mm -hmm. as everyone is probably aware uh, who follows these things, um, you know, Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss are working on new Dragonlance material, which I, I don't know what to, when this is going to air, but it's coming out imminently. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the fact that Wizards is really supporting those efforts and supporting a return to so many classic campaign settings from the early days of the game, I think, is wonderful. I mm -hmm. think it, it shows a fidelity to the roots of the game that is very admirable. And so uh, you probably won't hear me say a bad word about them and their stewardship. I think I think they're doing pretty well. Absolutely. And um, we should mention the Art in Arcana book is the New York Times bestselling Art in Arcana book. Um, and have you, do you think that Wizards of the Coast um, it has lended to the growth and popularity of the game um, by way of being able to reach out to other properties like Stranger Things, Rick and Morty, um, Magic the Gathering, etc.? So the, the synergy with magic is an interesting one. You know, they just did a new magic set this year that's called Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, where you can actually like enter dungeons while playing magic, the card game, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I actually kind of like uh, AFR. Um, but I, I think that the these synergies are more an effect of the game's popularity than a cause of it, in the sense of it's really because D&D has become such a big deal that you see you know, and again, Stranger Things itself, its invocations of D&D uh, when the Duffer Brothers started it, you know, are, are part of that cultural movement that return to this more analog, more personal, artisanal, hey, me and my friends sit around the table, we're the only people that has to love the experience we're having. Uh, that's one of the things that's so phenomenal about D&D as a, as a platform for personal creativity of its players. You know, I think that those things... Um, are much more responsible for the, uh, the, res the resurgence of the game. I think really the, the fact that you now have starter sets themed by Rick and Morty, and there's a whole even Rick and Morty crossover comic book series that the author Patrick Rothfuss and uh, Jim, Jim Zub, um, you know, did for, um, I forget which, which comic company they did it for, but maybe IDW. Um, you know, th those kinds of things I think are really more uh, symbols of its popularity than causes of it. Absolutely. And um, we do, of course, sell Game Wizards and the Rick and Morty Dungeons and Dragons crossover comics at Quill Ridge Books with free shipping. Uh, well, thank you, John. And thank you for writing this fascinating book that is perfect for fans of Dungeons and Dragons, fans of the entertainment industry, and fans of a good business history. Listeners, I've been speaking with John Peterson, author of Game Wizards, The Epic Battle for Dungeons and Dragons, which is published by our friends at MIT Press. John, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jason. And uh, best to you in the, the indie bookstores out there everywhere. <laughs> um, I hope the pandemic hasn't been too hard on you guys.
Once again, I would like to thank John Peterson for joining me. Copies of Game Wizards, the epic battle for Dungeons and Dragons can be ordered from www.quillridgebooks.com with free shipping for members of Readers Club Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro FM and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.